Good morning. So good to see you this morning. Thanks for being with us at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new to us, man, we're so honored that you're with us. Thanks for being here. We hope that you feel like family here, that you can worship with us, that you will enjoy being with our family at least for a little while this morning, that you'll give us another try at some point. Uh, we have, wasn't last Sunday awesome? Man, it was so much fun. We, we did, if you don't know, we did an outdoor service back behind our, our buildings back there. And uh, we had a great crowd, uh, we had great food, but most importantly, we had eight people that raised their hands to receive Jesus to be their Savior. <laughs> Praise God. So, such a beautiful service, man, we loved it. By the way, I just got to tell you, if you were one of those people that raised your hand and you said, hey, I, I want to I know the Lord is my Savior, I just want to ask you uh, to consider being baptized. That's the next step in salvation. When we give our lives, our hearts to Jesus, that's what he would have us do. We see that all throughout scripture in the New Testament, people came to the Lord and then they were baptized. So if you haven't been baptized and you've accepted Jesus, we would love to help you with that. And in the next two or three weeks, we're going to have a baptism service. We've got some kids from our youth group that have received Jesus and some folks from last week. So come tell me though, if that's the case for you, okay? Come let us know so that we can make a plan and uh, get the water warm-ish, all right? So this will, uh, that'll be a fun day as well. So listen, we've been in the book of Acts in our messages in a series called The Story of the Church, and I love the book of Acts. It's, uh, it's so good. The very end part of the book of Acts is really about the Apostle Paul. Uh, it's still about God's mission. It's still about what the Lord wants to do uh, in the church, but in many ways it sort of follows Paul's journey to the end of his life, all the way to the end of the book of Acts. Um, but last Sunday really kind of, moved the focus off of Paul a little bit, and we kind of focused on uh, this guy by the name of Felix, who was the governor of the province of Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. He, uh, we, we've talked about Felix quite a bit, but the thing that was interesting about Felix is he was interested in Paul. He wanted to know a little bit about Paul. He was interested in, in uh, why the Jews didn't like Paul. They, they had a, a vehement kind of dislike for Paul. Um, he was interested in spiritual things as well. And so he wanted to talk with Paul and hear from Paul. What are, what are these things that you're saying? But he wasn't interested enough for that gospel that Paul gave him to transform his life. And so we don't see choices. We don't see the character in this man's life that, that show us that he knew Jesus as his Savior. He wasn't transformed. Uh, he didn't have godly character. And then at the end of chapter 24 where we finished last week, we see a transition actually from Felix as governor to this new guy, uh, Pontius Festus. Uh, now we don't see it in the text, but the uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us the reason that uh, Felix got fired is because he didn't handle some uprisings very well. There's some uprisings between some Samaritans and some Syrians. And uh, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, didn't like how he handled it. He handled it in sort of a brutal way. Remember when uh, Tertullus, the attorney, said, you brought so much peace. Remember that? But he gets fired because of how brutal he treats people, and somehow Nero uh, doesn't like that and fires him and puts this new guy in, uh, in office here as governor of Judea. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn over to chapter 25 in Acts. We're going to look at the first five verses as we get into the story of the church here. You ready? Here we go. Acts 25 verse 1 says, Now three days after Festus had, a, had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. 
And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, then let them bring charges against him. Pray with me this morning as we look at this story and ask God to show us something in our own lives to love him more. Father, we love you. We're thankful for this story. God, we're thankful for your word, that every single sentence in your word has an application to our lives, that we can learn something, God. We can learn more of you. We can learn more about who we need to be. Uh, And God, I pray that the very spirit of the living God would be in this place, that you would lead us to all truth. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to decrease in this time, that you would increase and that you would give us courage to be obedient to your word. Lord, whatever we face, whatever we're walking through, and all of us are walking through something, that you would help us to understand the mission of Jesus is more important than anything else. That's our prayer. We pray that you would lead us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to talk about three things from our text today. We're going to end up going all the way through verse 12 in just a minute, but I want to talk about three specific pieces in our text today. The first one is the new guy, right? Festus, and then I also want to talk about favors, Because we see a lot of favors from uh, chapter 24. We see a lot of favors in chapter 25. Let's talk about Festus and favors, all right? So this is only three days after Festus takes the new job as governor. Uh, Give a little explanation of something that we see in, in these texts sometimes. It says that he goes up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Or he goes down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. I've mentioned this before. If you look at a map... That doesn't make sense because Caesarea is north of Jerusalem. So you would think it's the other way around. But but Jerusalem is a higher elevation. It's it's on a mountain. So when they speak of we're going up to Jerusalem, we're going up the mountain. That's what they mean. And we're going down the mountain. Even though we're going north, we're going down the mountain to Caesarea. So sometimes that can be a little confusing. That's what's happening. So Festus is on the new job. And evidently he's pretty serious about his job because in the first three days he realizes that Judea, where he is governor now, has an incredibly important uh, city, incredibly important place where uh, the, the hub of spirituality and spiritual life in his province is Jerusalem. So he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to get to know people, right? He's going to shake hands. He's like politician mode here. He's going to get to know people. He's going to try and figure out what this province is about. And so he meets all these Jewish leaders. It says he meets the chief priests and the principal men. I think what he means also is elders of uh, the Sanhedrin, potentially. So he's meeting uh, these guys. He's going around. And what's the first thing on their mind that they want to make sure that Festus understands? I think this is crazy. They want to know, they want him to know that they need to, he needs to bring Paul. This is two years after that first trial. Paul's been sitting in prison. Paul's been having conversations with Felix. And two years later, the the number one thing is not, listen, the famine. Remember that thing that happened in Jerusalem? It's not the welfare of the city. It's not the needs of the people, which sounds like something a politician ought to be considered about. Nope. It's Paul. Hey, can you do us a favor? I know you're new, but can you do us a favor? Bring Paul uh, from Caesarea to Jerusalem because we want to kill him, right? Festus doesn't know their intent. But isn't that interesting? That's the first thing on their mind for this new governor. 
we want you to do us a favor. Bring Paul to Jerusalem so that they can kill him. So here is uh, a new governor, but yet the same old schemes we have seen beforehand over and over. So they, they ask Festus for a favor. What's interesting is I started looking at all these. Here's favors flying around everywhere. At the end of chapter 24, it says that Felix, in order to do a favor for the Jews, leaves Paul in prison. Even though the, the Roman tribune had, had sent a letter to Felix and said, I don't see anything wrong with Paul. He, he's, I don't see him uh, guilty of any charges. I don't, I don't see it. He leaves Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. The next favor we see is the Jews ask Festus, the new governor, right? Uh, they ask Festus for a favor. Can you, can you bring Paul to Jerusalem? He doesn't know they have ulterior motives. He doesn't know that, that the Jews want to kill Paul, but they ask for another favor. And then, again, later in our text, it's going to, we're going to see that Festus, for a favor for the Jews, is going to give Paul the choice. Do you want to be tried again in, in Jerusalem? Right? It's like, what's going on with all these favors? The bottom line is that these favors indicate like um, an extreme power struggle between Jewish leaders and Jewish politics with uh, Roman politics together, right? They're, they're working things out. You do this for us, we'll do that for you. But again, the reason they want Paul coming from Caesarea to Jerusalem is so that they can murder him. Do you remember when we talked about the murderous plot before? There were 40 assassins. Do you remember that? 40 guys made a, a vow. They said, you know what? We're not going to eat anything. We're not going to drink anything until that man is dead. That's pretty serious, and that's, that's what you would call an immediate, it's an immediate vow. In other words, they're pretty serious about this because we like to eat, right? And so as soon as we possibly can, this man is going to be dead. I, I don't know what happened to him because he, he, you know, it's been two years now, so hopefully those guys are no longer in the picture. But what's funny is they're not in the picture. We don't see them now leading this murderous charge. Who we see now are the chief priests of the Jewish people. And the principal men, the elders, they are now in charge of a murderous plot. Well, we don't need the assassins anymore. We got this. They gave us a good idea, but it's two years later, and we just want Paul dead. But what's interesting is Festus seems to show a little bit more integrity in his political position than Felix did. He kind of snaps back at these guys when he says, hey, bring Paul down. Bring Paul down from uh, Jerusalem, I mean from Caesarea to Jerusalem. He says, you know what, I, I don't think so. Look with me in verse 4 again. We'll just read it again. It says, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. He said, so let the men of authority, if you're men of authority, go down with me to Caesarea. And if there's anything wrong about the man, then let them bring charges against him. It seems sort of like he's got a little bit of uprightness in him, right? Like, no, I'm not going to bring him to Jerusalem just because you want him to be brought to Jerusalem. If you have issue with this man, if there's anything wrong with him, if he's guilty of something, then come up to Caesarea. Bring charges against him. That's the way the law works. So we get a little sense that maybe Festus has a little bit more integrity in his uh, position. However, we see this a little bit more due process, but we also see some do-overs, right? Festus wants to hear Paul's case in Caesarea, kind of pulls rank on the Jews, and says, if you're accusing him, you got to come with me. Look in Acts 25, verse 6. It says, after he stayed among them, speaking of Festus staying with the leaders of the Jews, 
after he stays among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat at the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul, urged, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. Did you see what the Jews are doing here with Festus? Hey, you're new to town. We want to just get you acclimated to the best restaurants and things. You want, you know, we want to show you around a little bit. He spends eight to ten days with the Jewish leaders. Do you think they're whining and dining, Festus? You better believe it. You think they're doing everything they can to get on his good side? Oh, we're buddies now, Festus, yeah. Because they have an agenda, a murderous agenda, and they'll do anything they can to get on his good side. Uh, so he gets back to Caesarea. Evidently, the leading Jews have traveled with him to Caesarea, and now they're right there at the trial. Remember, before, when, when Paul was on trial, he had to wait five days because those leading Jews had to sit around. They had to find somebody to be an attorney, Tertullus. Then they had to get their story straight because they were lies. And then it took them five days to come to Caesarea to bring their charges against Paul. Not this time. They've got it all together. They've traveled with the governor, with Festus, and now they're there at the trial. Paul comes out, and they're ready to go, right? So they've been buttering up Festus, and they're ready to make their accusations. So this is so interesting. I want to show you this in verse 7. It says, when he had arrived, speaking of Paul, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, that they could not prove. Literally, these leading Jews are not sitting off somewhere filing a, a complaint. They are literally standing around Paul. If this is, table is Paul, they're standing right here, right around him. Now it's an issue of physical intimidation. It's not just saying, yeah, you did this. It's saying, you did this, right? Whispering things in his ear. Can you imagine? I don't think it phased Paul. But they were right around him, bringing not only charges and lies, but physical intimidation to the trial. Have you ever had a do-over? If you ever go play golf with me, you'll see quite a few do-overs. Uh, in golf, we call them mulligans, right? So you, you, you hit, the, hit the ball, and then you go, uh-uh, that, can't, that won't stand. I have to do that again. That's called a do-over or a mulligan. Uh, we see some do-overs here. Paul and the Jews first are going to bring their charges. They've already brought these charges to Felix, right? And now Paul's got to bring his defense. So, you know, we've already brought the defense with Felix. He's doing this again. And even though uh, Claudius Lysias said, you're innocent, I don't see anything wrong with Paul. They've got to do these do-overs. And it's going to lead to what seems like the same result, which is kind of just pushing pause on a case which indicates corruption. Right? Justice is you're guilty or you're innocent. I've heard what I need to hear. And the law is going to, we're going to make this decision by the law. But when you have to push pause and go, I just put him back in prison. I don't know. We'll just put him back in prison. There's corruption going on. Paul is, is tired of it. So the Jewish leaders, they make their case. And we don't see in the text all the specific uh, charges that are going to be brought against Paul. But Paul 
uh, refers to some. Paul is going to speak back to these charges, right? He says uh, here in verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So there's at least three charges that are being brought against Paul, okay? You've done something against the Jews, against the law. You've done something against the temple. Remember, they thought that he might have brought Trophimus into the temple, who was a Greek, who was a Gentile, and they're not supposed to come into the court of the the Jews. This was an offense uh, that you could kill somebody for. So they were ready to hang Paul right there in that moment. But he hadn't done that. He hadn't, remember he said, I hadn't brought any uh, arguments, haven't started anything, there's no disagreements going on here. He hadn't done that, so he he hadn't done anything against the law of the Jews, nothing against the temple. And then he adds this one, I've not done anything against Caesar either. I'm innocent of all these things. So it's kind of like deja vu, if you will. He's, he's been here before, and he's going to have the same outcome again. Then something interesting happens. Festus gives Paul the choice of where he wants to be tried. It's weird. It's a strange little moment. Look with me here. Paul's choice and charge. Acts 25, verse 9 says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Uh, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So right off the bat, we we see another favor, right? This is Festus going, hey, as a favor of the Jews, they asked me to do this. They really want him to come to Jerusalem. I don't know why, I guess. So he says, all right, here's your choice. Do you want to be tried in Jerusalem? Maybe you love Jerusalem, I'm sure. You're Jewish. He's thinking, maybe that's the place that you want to be. You want to go to Jerusalem, and hey, and guess what? Here's mixed signals. You want to be, you'll be tried by me. It's okay. Go to Jerusalem, but you'll be tried by me. It's going to be all right. You get these mixed signals. And again, you just get this gross feeling of corruption. Paul knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will die. Look what he says in verse 10, because he shoots back a bold response to Festus. Paul says, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. This is the place, right? He says, to the Jews, I've, I've, I've done no wrong. As to yourself, you know very well. So there's this, there's this sense that Paul is basically saying to him, listen, we're in Caesar's court, it's the right spot, I've done nothing wrong, and he shoots this across the bow of Festus. He says, you know that's true. You know yourself, I've done nothing. So why, what are we doing here? And you want to go to Jerusalem? No, we're in the right place. He says, if I've done something wrong and I deserve to die, I'm ready to go. Let's go. This boldness, this godly boldness in Paul to say, if you see something wrong, let's go. I'm ready to die. I'm not afraid to die. But if you don't see anything wrong, if you can't charge me of something, if you can't prove these charges against me, then nobody has a right to give me up to these men, obviously because they'll kill him. 
And then Paul does something very interesting and specific to Roman law. He, he, he uses this defense that is given to uh, Roman citizens, kind of like our Fifth Amendment. I plead the Fifth, you know. Somebody does this in the court of law, it's all of a sudden it changes the course of, of the, the court. And they kind of go, well, what are we going to do? He pleaded the Fifth. You know, it's that kind of a deal. Paul uses this uh, appeal called provocatio. And what that means is, I, I, I want to push pause on this, and I want to go to Caesar. I'm, I'm done with this. I appeal to Caesar. I want Caesar to be my judge. And as a Roman citizen, that's his right. Well, Festus didn't know what to do. <laughs> He's like, uh, but I've got a favor to, uh, let's see. Um, he gets his counsel together. What, I mean, he's, he's appealed to Caesar. They have no choice. And so Festus says to him, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So who we're talking about here, Caesar, is Nero. You ever heard that name, Nero? They say Nero was fiddling when Rome burned. Well, their fiddles really weren't even created at that point, I don't think. So that's not true, but he, he is responsible for a lot of carnage and a lot of crazy that went down in Rome. Hated Christians. Burned them alive in, in Rome just to give light in the darkness of night. He was a crazy man later in his uh, rule. Ruled for about 14 years. But early in his rule, he, he was young, 17. And he wasn't quite as, as crazy. This was earlier in his rule. So now Paul is uh, appealing to Nero. So what does this mean for us? I, I mentioned this the other day. When we, when we go through Acts, it's such a narrative book. It's such a crazy, wonderful, exciting story, right? So in some senses, you look at stories like this and you go, well, this is a wonderful history of the church. It's a wonderful story of the church. It's a wonderful uh, information about Paul. But there's also things in here that we can glean as believers in Jesus. Sometimes in a narrative passage like this, we've got to pull back to a 30,000-foot view and go, okay, God, what do you want to show us? What do you want us to see? And as I prayed about that this week for our family, I came up with three things that I felt like God wanted to show us. The first thing that he laid on my heart through this text is that this word favor, right? This word favor. So this is negotiations uh, represented of power structures. It's the same kind of thing that happens in Washington, D.C. every single day. It may happen at our capital every day. It may happen at your work. It may happen in your family. It may happen in your marriage. Uh, you remember this phrase that was thrown around a ton in the, in the uh, election cycle? A quid pro quo, remember that word, that phrase, quid pro quo? What it means is I, I get something and I'll give something back. If I, if I can get something, then I'll do something for you. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. That's what it means. That's exactly what's going on here in this political uh, tense relationship between the leaders of the Jews and this Roman governor. Hey, do us a favor, we'll, you, know, we'll do you a favor with the Jewish people is basically what's happening. And we see them all over the place. So this is going on all the time. But can I just remind us as the body of Christ that favor with man is not near as important as favor with God. It's not near as important. And yet how many times do we run around in our lives hoping for favor with people and not worried about anything with God? Instead, what we see here is is. These favors, we, we need you to do this because you're in control, governor. And since you're in control, we need you to do this. 
Some spiritual leaders these guys were, right? Whitewashed tombs, as Paul and Jesus both call them. But what is it about favor? See, the thing is, is only God is in control. And when we favor people in some way like that, we're, we're basically saying, you're in control. You're in control of our country, Mr. President. You're in control of our jobs, Mr. Boss. You're in, in control of our church, Pastor. You're in control of our families. No. God is the only one who's in control. But what you believe about somebody in control may say something about what you believe about God. Right? Because if you truly think somebody is in control and you need them for something in your life, then that's who you worship. Because that's who you think is in control. But God is in control. Colossians 1 says, Jesus holds all things together, everything, all of our lives, all of creation. He is in control. He put it this way. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, he said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other who is your master. Do we trust God is in control? See, if we seek man's approval, if that's what we do, we're just hungry for man's approval, then we'll never seek God's. However, if we love God, if we seek God's approval, we can also have man's. Look what it says in Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I love this scripture. Because the writer's saying to us, listen, when we love like Jesus, a steadfast love, and our lives are faithful lives serving him, what we need to do is we need to have an exterior life we put it around our neck. And we need to have an interior life. We write it on the tablet of our hearts. That's what he's saying. There's an external perspective and an internal perspective. God needs to be the Lord of our life to everyone that can see us around. And not just from some performance standpoint. Not just look at me. No, literally in our character, in our integrity, in who we are. Externally and internally. Here's the second thing I, I want us to take a look at in this story. First is favor. The second is this character. Paul's character seems to protect him, doesn't it? All these trials, his character seems to protect him. And what's interesting is this is what, when we, when we live for Jesus, your character, your integrity can protect you. Paul could give an incredible defense before this, this council here at Caesarea. Why? Because it's all true. That's why. My mom used to tell me all the time, you know, if, if, uh, if you tell the truth, you have nothing to worry about. If you just tell the truth, you don't have to manage uh, lies. You don't have to remember who you told this and who you told that. <laughs> have you ever done that before? The truth is just the truth. And so Paul's like, here you go. I'm right here. I didn't do anything against the law, nothing against the temple, and nothing against Caesar. That's the truth. If I'm guilty of something, kill me. I'm not afraid. See the power in that. His integrity, his character literally protected his life. He had nothing to worry about. He honored God. He followed the law. Titus chapter 2 verse 7. I think this is interesting. Paul writes to Titus a little later in Rome. And he writes this to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 
and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. I wonder if Paul, when he wrote that, was thinking back to this moment, right? Yeah, they had some uh, wrong things, some lies to say about me, but none of it stuck. It won't work because he was speaking the truth. Have integrity and your opponents will be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. This is exactly what we see Paul doing in this moment. So I'll mention this to you. Proverbs 10.9 says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. That's what we're talking about. Paul before this judge, confident in who he is in Jesus. Confident of the life he's led. Confident of honoring God in all things. Psalm 25.21 says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on you. Integrity and uprightness, they preserve me. They protect me. They keep me. When you walk in the truth, you don't have anything to worry about. Here's the third thing that I want to take from this, this message this morning. And it's the title of the message. It's probably the most important thing I want you to hear. If you take anything away today, I want you to take this. Paul's mission was greater than his trial. Clearly we see it in every single trial, but Paul's mission is greater than his trial. Your mission, if you know Jesus, is greater than your trial. See, one thing we have in common this morning, every single one of us, is struggle. Doubt, fear, concern, worry, issues. <laughs> we got issues, people, right? Every single one of us, from the most spiritual to the brand new believer, Every one of us is dealing with fear, concern, worry, issues. But the question I have for us, family, today is this. Are our issues more important to us than the mission that God has for us and wants to use through these issues? Are, are, are we struggling more with the precedence of the trial than the mission of Jesus? This is what I mean. You're consumed with it. You don't think about anything else. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking about your trial. You've wept over it. You're weary from it. You're exhausted. You, you, you can't think about anything else. And I've been there. We've all been there. It could be the death of a loved one or worry about a job or finances or marriage or whatever the case may be. We all are going to face trials and difficulty but they can't take precedence over the mission of Jesus. Sometimes our prayers are prayers like this. They're like, Lord, give me more strength to deal with this trial, right? Lord, help me to be a better Christian through this trial. It's not a bad prayer, but it might not be the best prayer. Let me, ask, let me tell you why. We, we sometimes pray prayers that we can do better, we can look better, we can respond better. But my friend, you remember my friend Chad Carger preached here a few weeks ago? He said something that weekend that just popped in my head as I was studying this. And he said, the best version of me is a lousy version of Jesus. The best version of all that I can bring, most impressive, most wonderful, 
is a lousy version of Jesus. Sometimes, I want you to know, through your trial, people don't need to see that maybe you're holding it together perfectly. They just need to see Jesus. We say, Lord, strengthen me. And sometimes we need to say, no, Lord, just make sure Jesus is seen through me, through the brokenness, through the weariness, through the trial. Doesn't matter, God. I, I want to honor you. I want to live for you. But I want you to be seen. People need to see you. See, as Christians, we need to have a biblical worldview of suffering. It's not a fun topic. But as Christians, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we have to have a biblical worldview of suffering. What does that mean? It means we understand we're all going to walk through something, probably several times in our lives. And it's going to be very, very difficult at times. Every one of us this morning struggling with something. But not every one of us is going to honor Jesus in the middle of that struggle. Because some of us are going to make life about the struggle. Some of us are going to hold up and honor the trial, the difficulty, the weariness, instead of saying, no, I'm going to honor Jesus. I want him to shine in my life, even when I don't know what's happening, I don't know what the future holds. I want him to be over everything I'm going through that he has seen. Friends, it's important that we show the world that Jesus is greater than the pain. That his love for us, his love for those around us is greater than the trial we face. Greater than the unknown. He's greater. I, I keep talking about Scott. I keep mentioning Scott Williams. Um, is this not exactly what Scott has done? This is exactly what our friends Scott and Ellie have done. They're, he's given a terminal brain uh, diagnosis, cancer. He doesn't, he, his life doesn't settle into uh, apathy and bitterness and worry. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but I went to go see Scott on the night before he had his surgery to remove the, the tumor from his brain. I've, ne I've never seen him more joyous in all my life. It literally made me go, am I being punked right now? What's, I don't I'm coming to console a man who's dying from a, a brain cancer. And he's like, Drew, come on in here. It's beautiful. And that has been his attitude. Yeah, he has his moments. Ellie will tell you, yeah, he's got his moments. He'll tell you, I've had my moments. But instead of going, you know, this is my trial and this is, this is going to be the end of my life. And then, no, not Scott. Scott said, oh, look at my Jesus. Look at this opportunity God has given me. I heard it come out of his mouth. Drew, this is an opportunity to bring glory to Jesus, to connect people to Jesus, to bring uh, financial resources to cancer research. It's been incredible. Listen, do you think Paul had been fretting for two years in jail? Oh, I can't believe I'm in jail. It's been two years. You think that's Paul? Paul's not worried about Festus and Felix. Paul knows that every moment of his life, every moment of the trials in his life, God has ordained. Some theologians believe that those two years that Paul was in prison in Caesarea could have been the years that Luke was accompanying him, was near him, was visiting him. And guess what Luke wrote potentially in that time period? The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Isn't that amazing? God just gives Paul this, this, this chance to, to record all that God has done with Luke. 
What a blessing. You know, when my mom died, we had a, a, we had a quarantine the next day after we uh, gathered together as a family after she passed. And we were all so angry. You guys remember that? We were so frustrated that we had to be quarantined and we had to literally put off my mom's funeral service. But can I just tell you what an unbelievable blessing those two weeks were? We didn't, we didn't want to wait, but it caused us to stay put. It caused us to mourn in place. It caused us to, to weep for a season and not have to be anywhere except to grieve. That trial was a blessing for our family. The trial you're walking through can be a blessing, but it all determines, it's all determined by your attitude. It's all determined by how you want it to be seen. Listen, I, I want to remind you of some things before we go. Instead of putting your focus on trial, I want you to do this. Know who your God is. Did Paul know who his God was? Was he confident in his God? In the fact that if God is for me, who can be against me? Do your worst, Felix. Do your worst, Festus. You know why? Because Jesus told me I'm going to Rome. And so you mean nothing. You think you judge me today, but one day you'll be judged. And remember, Felix was so scared, he said, go away from me from now. I can't handle this right now. Know who your God is. Secondly, know who you are. Do you know who you are, believer? You're a child of the most Hi, we sang it this morning. You're a son or daughter of the King of Kings. You're made in his image. You have infinite worth. Know who you are. Instead of focusing on your trial, know what your mission is. And can I just tell you this? Listen, if you know Jesus as your Savior today, if you know him, your mission is to make him known. So, well, I don't, hang on, I, man, I, I'm, a, I'm a father, I love my family, I work hard from, praise God, way to go. And that's, that's part of the mission. But the greatest honor that you have, the greatest mission you have in life, the greatest thing that the Lord has given you is to make Jesus known. Through your life, through your work, through your marriage, through your children, this is your mission to make Jesus known. And the way God may do that, listen, Maybe through your trial. It may be your most vulnerable moment of your life where Jesus makes himself known through you. So what will you be made of in that moment? Can I just tell you, God knows what you're going through. He knows what you need. He knows how weary you are. And he loves you enough to show his glory through you and your trial. He's greater than your trial. Psalm 30 says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the what? In the morning. Do we know that? Do we believe that? Our mission is greater than our trials. Our mission is greater than our trials. May God give us the courage to use these trials in our lives, these struggles, these issues for his glory. And to make him known. Lord, don't just make me look strong. Just don't make me look like I can handle anything and walk through. No, I pray that my life just holds up Jesus and says, this may be all I have, and it's more than enough. Jesus. I'm going to read one last verse to you before we go. 
First Peter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the, so that is, this is why, so listen, okay? This is why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the why of your trial. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though do you not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, we go through trials so that we can know Jesus more. We can have a revelation of who he is, that this testedness of our lives, you know, sometimes the trials in our lives are the hardest things we walk through. And my heart goes out to all of us today because each of us is facing something. Each of us is walking through something pretty difficult. But this test wants to reveal your genuine faith in Jesus. Not only reveal it to the world, but give you more knowledge, more revelation of who Jesus is. And even though we haven't seen him, that though we believe in him, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I can't even tell you why. It's inexpressible and it's filled with glory. Listen, some of you need to change the story on your trial today. You need to quit giving it glory. You need to quit holding it up as all that you're about. No. Make Jesus all you're about and make your trial secondary to him. Can we do that? Let's make that choice today. Let's seek him. Let's believe in him. Let's know him. Let's have him revealed to us because of that trial that we have authentic faith and we have inexpressible joy filled with glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for trials. Thank you for trials. I say that even though I really don't want to say that. I believe that even though it's hard to believe it. I voice it, God, even though it's hard for my mouth to make the words to say thank you for trials. Everyone in here is facing one of some kind, some question, some doubt, some concern. But Lord, you are far and above any trial we face. You are far and above any struggle, any doubt, any fear, any question, any issue in our lives. May you receive glory. May you shine. Forgive us, God. Forgive us if we ever bring glory to something that is a trial instead of bringing glory to you in the middle of it. Thank you for this story of Paul. Thank you that we can learn from his focus, his confidence in you, his faith, Lord Jesus, that you said he's going to go to Rome. He's not afraid to die. His mission is the greatest thing in his life. And may the mission of Jesus, may knowledge of Jesus, may relationship in Jesus be the most important thing in ours. That's our prayer and our hope. 
And we pray it today in that precious and wonderful name. Amen. Amen.